Hi there, and welcome to Mental Trainer Podcast. For non-Norwegian listeners, the Mind Coach Podcast that you also can find on iTunes. My name is Frank Nielsen. I'm the founder of the non-profit NoMoreFear.no. I'm also the co-founder of MentalFitOnline.no. I had a life-changing event back in 2011 when I experienced panic attacks for over four months. And since that time, I've been working as a mind coach for professional athletes, CEOs, and entrepreneurs. And I've been really devoting my life to bring awareness and solutions about anxiety. That is what I'm passionate about. And that's the reason I started this podcast this summer. And since then, I've talked to Norwegian pole explorers, famous Norwegian artists, world champions in rock climbing, 40 times Guinness record holders in breaking stones, and famous Norwegian authors. To share their stories, their strategies to talk on fear, how they motivate themselves, and much more. In the first international episode a while back, I talked to James Bruman. He ran across Australia in 82 days by himself, just to have fun. He has also cycled from Alaska to Argentina in two years. He has base jumped, been to Mount Everest, and much more. You can check that episode out on the Mind Coach podcast on iTunes. Now, in this second international podcast episode, I'm really looking forward to share with you. Dr. Jordan B. Peterson is a cl- clinical psychologist and professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. He previously served as a professor at Harvard University. Dr. Peterson has become a YouTube phenomenon with his lectures that has been seen by millions of people all over the world. If you haven't seen them, check it out. He is the author of the book Maps of Meaning, the Architecture of Belief. He has also authored or co-authored more than 80 academic research articles on a wide variety of psychological topics. And is one of the team behind the online program Self-Altering. Now, to the episode. Some of the topics we talk about is how we as human beings see the world through our map of the world. How important it is to constantly update this map and keep breaking out of our comfort zone. How we see different solutions based on our personality type. And why stories like The Hobbit is powerful and much, much, much more. There is just one thing to say and that is enjoy. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. You said something in the Joe Rogan podcast, Jordan, that really caught my attention. Yeah. And you said that uh, memories that is reoccurring, that is more than 18 months old, we don't have a solution for. We have to find a solution for it. Yes. And yes. What? I, when, I, when I heard that, I was, it really caught my ears. I went, what? What is he saying now? Can you please elaborate on that one? Sure. Well, obviously... If, if, if something occurs in your life and it, it has emotional significance, it beca- it's because it has some kind of implication either for how you should act or how you should think about how you should act. So, for example, if you're arguing with someone and they want you having a dispute with them, they generally want you to do something different or they want you to think about the world in a different way. But that's still related to action. So emotion, especially negative emotion, tends to signify that something about the way you're conceptualizing the world or yourself or the way you're acting is incorrect. Otherwise, it wouldn't have a negative outcome, right? Because when you act in the world, you're always trying to essentially to get what you want and also to validate your your viewpoint. Mm. If, if something, if a negative emotion occurs, it means that you made an error of some sort. Mm call it a prediction error or or you could call it a strategic error and your mind is set up your brain is set up so that strategic errors are in some sense intolerable 
And the reason for that is that you don't want to repeat a mistake. And so your brain will tag an error with negative emotion and then obsess you with it until you figure it out. Oh, so for people that haven't figured it out, have figured out the solution. Yeah, ah. well, that, that's the thing. And so, so you can think about it another way. You can think about it in terms of how an animal maps out a territory. So what an animal wants is for everything it does in a territory to have the outcome that it, that it either predicts or desires. It doesn't want anything to go wrong. And if something goes wrong, it means that some of the territory isn't mapped properly. Now, the map is partly a representation of the territory, but also a partly a representation of how to act there. Hmm. And so you can imagine imagine something like fire. You, you have to cope with fire as a human being. You can avoid it or you can master it. Either way, what you've done is you've adjusted your behavior to the demands of the situation so that the outcome that you want occurs. Now, your mind keeps track to some degree of how much of your territory is properly mapped. And territory can be past or present or future. And the, the more of your territory that isn't mapped properly, the more stress you experience. Because your brain assumes that, like, if you're surrounded by things that you don't understand, mm. you will produce a lot of the stress hormone cortisol. Yeah. And cortisol activates you physiologically so that you're prepared to do whatever's necessary in the next moment. Mm. It's like an emergency preparation chemical in some sense, or it starts the cascade that produces emergency preparation. Mm. And the problem with that is it's very, very physiologically demanding. That's why people talk about such things as being burned out. Yeah. You know, so if the stress accumulates to, 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 to too high a degree and the activation demands on you become too great, then you start to break down psychophysiologically. It damages your brain. It makes you old. That's what cortisol is. <laughs> and so, yeah. okay, and that's a long answer to the question, but what that – what important means, ones, extremely well, important what ones. it means is that if there's part of your past that's still unmapped, hmm. so it'll still be processed by the emotions that produce, by the, by the brain and mind areas that produce negative emotion. And so if you have a memory and it produces negative emotion, it means you haven't mapped the territory properly. And as far as your brain is concerned, you're liable to make the same mistake again. Ah. So you... When, when something negative happens in the past, essentially what you have to do is a causal analysis of it. Mm. And causal analysis is what it is that you did that increased the probability that that would occur mm. or what precautions you failed to take or what elements of your worldview are incorrect. And then you have to figure out what you would do in the future to minimize that risk. And the program that we developed, which is part of the self-authoring program, there's a part of it that helps people write an autobiography. Mm. And that helps them identify the parts of their past experiences that are still tagged with emotional information and then to write and think them through. Mm. And the, the research indicates, this is mostly research that was done by someone named James Pennebaker at the University of Texas at Austin. He, he did most of the research on writing about the past. And he showed that it can produce quite dramatic health improvements. 
And that I understand because then it lower cortisol and the immune system rises up again. Correct? Yes. Yeah. Well, that's right. It's because if you're if you're stressed and you produce cortisol, and cortisol suppresses your immune system, among many other things. Mm. Because your body assumes that if you're in a state of emergency crisis, which is the case if you're facing something that's negative or complex, that there's no sense wasting energy on long-term immune responses. But does that mean uh, yep. uh, if, there's, if you have this pattern, this reoccurring pattern, because we haven't ended or found a solution for um, something that happened 20 years ago when we was little, then, that means that we're taking this pattern into adult age. Yeah, well, it, it means before, that... It before means, we find a solution for it. Yeah, well, it sort of means, in some sense, it means that you're taking a hole in your map forward into the future. But, well, what often happens, for for example, a powerful ne- negative memories can be can be formed when someone encounters someone who's really out to harm them. So many people develop post-traumatic stress disorder because they've encountered something, something, something malevolent, mm. something that really wishes harm. And sometimes they can encounter that within themselves. That often happens to soldiers mm. because soldiers mm. generally develop post-traumatic stress disorder because of something they've done rather than something that's happened to them. You said something in one of your lectures about uh, traumatic, traumatic uh, incidents. And you uh, used an example uh, about a rat, that a rat can scream for two days if it smells like a cat. Yes, exactly, yes. And that, can, you, can you say a little bit of that? I want to ask a question after you, told it, after you said that example, if you can. Well, sometimes with my clinical clients, for example, they, they've encountered someone who wants to hurt them. And in fact, I had one client, for example, who was frightened into, really literally frightened into three years of, quasi-epileptic seizures because of the look on her boyfriend's face boyfriend's face now she was a very naive person her parents had taught her literally that adults were angels and she believed that literally they taught her that and she believed that everyone was intrinsically good and then she met someone who actually wanted to do her harm and what happened was that imagine that she had a map of human beings and what they're like And her map was predicated on the assumption that everyone was good and so that if you were just nice to people, that everyone would try to do their best and get along. And then she met someone who wasn't like that at all, or at least wasn't like that for some period of time. And what that did was demolish the whole part of her map that had to do with human beings. She didn't have what she had to do in order to recover from that to some degree was to develop a more sophisticated philosophy of good and evil. Mm. start to understand that people aren't just good that that there's all sorts of malevolent things that human beings can do but that you can still live in the world even though that's true you just have to live with your eyes open and you have to be not so naive and more mature and more careful Mm. and it took a long time for her to work through all of that i mean we had to i had to i had to i taught her a fair bit about about human history and about the terrible things that people can do to one another and 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 she had to develop a new way of looking at the world that that would protect her much better. And then her symptoms went away. And so these errors that you make, imagine the errors that you make that cause negative emotion can, can occur at many levels of severity. And so one of the things that often causes post-traumatic stress disorder for people is betrayal. Mm. So imagine that you have had a relationship, an intimate relationship with someone for 
let's say, 10 years, and you believe that they've been faithful to you and that, and, and you have as well, so that that bond of honesty prevails. And then you find out one day that they've had five affairs and that that's been going on behind your back the entire time. And so what happens then is that your model of that person is blown apart. But that isn't where it stops, because not only is your model of that person blown apart, but all the memories that you had about the time you spent with them are now predicated on invalid assumptions. Mm. So your whole past becomes questionable. And then, of course, the present becomes questionable because you don't know who the person is anymore. And the future becomes questionable because you've planned out your future according to a set of assumptions that you held about that person. And all those assumptions have turned out to be wrong. So that all goes. And then you're faced with having to reevaluate your assumptions about yourself because it turns out that you're a lot more gullible and naive and blind than you thought you were. And that means that everything that you're going to do that was predicated on your previous self-assumption is also thrown up into the air. Mm. And, and that's the sort of thing, that's how people come unglued. That, those are traumatic circumstances because they demolish almost they almost demolish the person's entire map, mm. and that'll put them in a state of hyper-preparation and panic. I know that you're very good at personality types. And what I'm thinking when I hear that you're saying that uh, when the map, when, when, the, when it doesn't happen, what the map, say, map says, our internal map says, is that we're getting stressed because we don't have control over the situation. For example, yeah, and that is because we like to have certainty. We always certain, seeking for certain for certainty. So, does that really mean, then, Jordan, that if we don't meet our map, what we're thinking our map is, we don't get certainty, we don't get control, and that is why we get stressed and get anxious and so on. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Yes, yes, because when, when you don't, it's not so much to get what you predict it's to get what you want and that's that's certainty because you judge the validity of your behavior based on how effective your behavior is in producing what you want in a situation because you're always governed by some sort of wants you're always you know you're always in some sort of state of desire like it can be abstract desire it can even be altruistic desire Mm. but you're always moving according to a value structure and and Mm. Go ahead. But a lot of people they get stressed if their map doesn't fit. So if they have, yes. also if they're, for example, have for that, oh, I can go to work at eight. They go to train at uh, at four, for example, and something happened at work and they can't train and they get mad because the map doesn't fit. Yes, as they definitely. don't get certainty then. So what yes. what can that what can what can they do <laughs> to get certainty out of uncertainty? Yeah, well, I'll answer that in a minute, but it's, mm. there's something else that goes along with that that's worth pointing out. Is I mean, the reason that people are so motivated to cling to their belief systems is because they don't want their maps violated. And so that's partly why there's political dispute and, 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 and religious dispute, because those are, those are different maps. And the problem is, is that when your map gets disrupted, it dysregulates your emotions. Right, and that and, and puts you into this state of hyper preparation. A lot of that's associated with anxiety, and it can be associated with anger as well. That's mm. very physiologically stressful, and so that's why people don't like to have their belief systems disrupted. Now, if you are in a situation where something unexpected happens, 
there's a there's a, a whole train of automatic responses. The, the first thing you do, you tend to do is freeze like an animal that's facing a predator. Hmm. And you freeze because your brain presumes that if you don't know where you are, because your map is wrong, hmm. then you should stop what you're doing and reconsider. And then the next thing to do is to pay close attention. I mean, you can leave, you can leave the situation, right? Hmm. And you can shut down the argument and you can you can physically move to a different locale. The problem with that is that you don't you sacrifice any information you might gain. And if you do stay in the if you do stay where you've made a mistake, well then the next step is to explore. And you can do that by paying more attention and also by thinking and also by talking with other people. Mm. Because talking is a, a form of joint problem solving and it's like a map reparation exercise. That's what you do when you have an argument with someone and finally settle it and mm. and make apologize to one another. You know, you've you've sewed the the hole in the map up. That that's one way of thinking about it. So then you're searching for a me- for a solution for the map. Then, so yeah. Yes. I'm, I have to ask about the rat question again. For you say that yes. if, if if a rat experience a smell of a cat, even if the cat isn't there, or if they've even had seen a cat before, it goes screaming for two days. Yes. And, and yes. And two days for that, that's about 14 days for us humans, if yes. I remember correctly. Uh, and when people go into anxiety, for example, they go into a, into a state of anxiety. And after that state of anxiety, they often go into sadness. Yes. Often after sadness, they, they just get empty. They're just, they're just calm. And after that, they are, they are back to being fine again. So... We have a pattern, and often these states, we are into these states of, for example, anxiety. For It can be for four minutes or, or an hour. And we go into sadness, and sadness can differ a lot of how long we are into the state of sadness. So my question to you, then, uh, Jordan, is that these are just states. And we know that by using our body, we can change states. So what do you recommend for people that, for example, are in... Uh, uh, having trouble with stress or anxiety because we know that they are going through these states because we have this pattern we always have this pattern but to go through this pattern more quickly can we change states immediately just just to break the pattern or or do we have to find meaning for the map each time well you know i would say there are some rules of thumb you know i mean you don't want to read analyze your entire map every time you make a mistake so there's some rules of thumb if you're dealing with another person and and you have an interpersonal conflict i would say that under those circumstances often the best thing to do to begin with is just to ignore it and to attribute it to situational causes because you can't get upset and restructure yourself or the other person every time there's a minor dispute Mm. I would say with another person, if the same thing happens three times in a row, if the same thing happens three times, then there's probably something that needs to be talked through. Yeah. Um, with regards to things that that are unpredicted, unpredictable, or where you don't get what you want, it depends on the probability that you'll have to repeat the situation. You know, so if you're driving around and someone, you know, says something rude to you from another car it's probably a good idea just to leave that go because the probability that you'll encounter that person again is very low. Mm. But if you're having difficulties with someone at work and that happens on a daily basis, then you're, you're faced with the necessity of 
either living with the uncertainty and stress or coming up with a solution. Mm. And of course, the solution can be a very difficult thing to to generate because generally, if you're faced with a problem, it's an actual problem and not just something that you know, and not something that's merely psychological that can be merely adjusted with a with a small change in the way you look at the world. Mm. And what clinical psychologists do basically is, if someone's facing a problem, say in a workplace, they try to break the problem down into its constituent elements, mm. you know, to make it a series of smaller problems, and then to generate a wide range of solutions and to analyze the solutions and then to help people implement and and uh, and and see if that'll solve the problem. Is so, that, that's all the reason that mind mapping with solutions is very, is very powerful for those yeah, well, sorts of situations? Yeah, well, you... You, you want to generate a plethora of solutions. Mm. You know, it's like a Darwinian process in some sense. So imagine organisms are always faced with adaptive problems in the environment. And the way they solve that, they solve that through reproduction. So, you know, a mosquito might have 10,000 offspring. And each of those offspring is a potential solution to the problem of survival. Of course, most of those offspring don't survive. But some of them do. and Partly what you want to do if you have a problem is you want to generate a large number of solutions. And then you can use your own thinking process, your critical thinking process, or discussions with other people to sort of cull those problems down to maybe the most intelligent, implementable solution, and then and then try to implement it. As persons, from what I experience is that if we don't have a solution for something, if, yeah. for, for example, we have five open things we don't have a solution for, we're getting stressed. But if we're yeah. using, for example, a mind map, and we get those those five five things, and we write a solution for it, we calm down. So, yes, is that the same for all person uh, personality types? It's the same. It's the same. It's a universal problem solving mechanism. Yeah, interesting. I mean, that's really the purpose of thinking. Hmm. The purpose of thinking is to re is to re is to repair the map. That's that's a good way of thinking about it. It's the purpose of consciousness in some in some sense to be aware of anomalies and errors and to focus on rectifying them. And but from, and the, five, but for, uh, from the five different personality types. Well, I would say that what happens with the different personality types is that there it isn't that the problem solving mechanism differs; it's that they're more likely to generate different solutions. So, for example. An, an extroverted person is more likely to turn to social activity as a problem-solving mechanism mm. because they like other people and they're good at dealing with other people and they get a lot of positive emotion from that. So that's where they're going to they're going to derive their solutions from interpersonal contact. And uh, someone who's high in negative emotion is going to increase the safety of their surroundings. Mm. And someone who's agreeable is going to try to bolster their intimate relationships <clears throat> and maybe try to act in an altruistic manner. And someone who's disagreeable is going to become, is going to turn to competition. And a conscientious person is going to try to work their way out of the situation. And an open person is going to try to do something creative. And those are all just different domains of potential adaptation. Mm. The different big five personality traits are all, they all orient people towards different different forms of problem solving and adaptation 
That is very interesting because that means that these the five different personnel types have a different map and from that map they're also searching different definitely. solutions yep. from each other. Yeah. Yes, definitely. They have different maps and they you know you can think of a, a personality type a personality trait is um, a form of adaptation to the world. Mm. It's a, a set of viewpoints and strategies for for finding a niche and occupying it successfully. And there are different niches and so you know the extroverted niche is to be a social entertainer and communicator mm. and the agreeable niche is to be altruistic and, and caring and the conscientious niche is to be hardworking and reliable and 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 all of those you can think about them in some sense as different toolkits that people bring into the world mm. and in a toolkit there are multiple tools and the tools have different functions they're all tools they're all useful tools but they're designed for different purposes. Useful to think. I mean, you can think about this politically as well. So, for example, liberal people, people who are on the liberal and the left end of the political spectrum, they tend to be higher in trait openness and lower in conscientiousness. And so they're more creative types. And then the conservatives are higher in conscientiousness and lower in creativity. Mm. And what's interesting about that is that they each fill different niches. So, the liberal types, the liberal slash creative types, make good entrepreneurs, but the conservative types make good managers and administrators because mm. they're detail oriented and more dutiful. Mm. And so, in a modern economy, you need people with liberal temperaments to start businesses and to generate creative ideas, and you need people with conservative temperaments in order to implement those ideas and to keep the businesses, perhaps that the ideas produced, running effectively and efficiently. And so they both occupy a different, it's a really important thing for people to understand because there's so much polarization between the left and the right now that neither of them understand what the other is good for. I think it's extremely important. That's the only reason I wanted to talk to you. Uh, one thing I just think about when I'm talking to you is that, is it possible if you're high or negative, is it possible to to scale more over to a positive and open? Is that possible? Yes. Yes. Well, there's been research done on that with children. So some children. So imagine if you're sensitive to negative emotion, what that means is you experience more psychophysiological psychophysiological activation per unit of uncertainty. It's something like that. Because your body doesn't know Excellent. how to up, your body doesn't know how upset to get mm. when something upset upsetting happens. Mm. And different people estimate that in different ways. And so there are some people who no matter what happens to them, they hardly get upset at all. <laughs> there are other people who are really undone by the smallest of things. And it's it's not easy to figure out which of those situations, which of those response patterns is correct, because it depends to some degree on the absolute dangerousness of the environment. Mm. And those that varies across environments. Sometimes someone who's terrified of everything is wired exactly right, because they're in a environment where everything is really dangerous mm. so but back to the children's study so if, if you happen to have a child that's fairly high in negative emotion that easily gets upset the best thing to do with them is to continually cautiously expose them to new situations and encourage them to explore and they can tilt their nervous systems more towards normative responses over time as they become more skilled because they actually learn how to operate in many situations but mm. they also they also they also 
um, the their observation of themselves mastering new situations tends to dampen down their emotional reactivity across time. So that means if you're an uh, introverted person and start training yourself to be a, a more extroverted, extroverted. Well, it would be well, it would be more if you're a, someone who's high in negative emotions. So if you're high in neuroticism, you can train yourself to be less neurotic. Okay. If you're if you're introverted, you can train yourself to be more extroverted. Hmm. You ha- you sort of have to build the skills from the bottom up. Hmm. You no, know? you, you really have to acquire them rather than them being part of your natural armament, say. I understand, because in one of your lectures about personality types, uh, you say that um, if we do not go outside our comfort zone, we are not uh, activating all our gene pool, all our genes yes. in our DNA. Yes, well, that's that's well, that's a, that's a whole different issue. Yeah, yeah, and I think that is that's extremely a, interesting. <laughs> it is extremely interesting because you know human beings seem to be characterized by potential, whatever that is, is mm. that there there seems to be more to us than we are manifesting at any given moment, and some of that's obviously because you're only using certain things you know right now, and in another situation you'd use different things that you know. But it's deeper than that because it turns out that a lot of potential is locked into the genetic code, roughly speaking, and that if you put yourself in a new environment, then new genes turn on and they build they build new parts of you, essentially, and that that changes you. That of course that, that turns on a new part of you. That's a good way of thinking about it. And so one one possible consequence of that is that. The more places you go and the more things that you do, the more of you gets turned on. Mm. And I think that's a really good way of thinking about things. I, I, I think all the evidence suggests that viewpoint. Does this mean, Jordan, if, for example, I'm having trouble with uh, socializing with other people and I start to train myself, go out my comfort zone, I start training myself to having uh, interaction with other people. Yeah. And I see that all it works. I get a feeling of uh, mastery. Yeah, and at that moment, I get this feeling of mastery. I have actually turned on a gene. Yeah, well, and you've also yes, well, it's hard to say if if that feeling of mastery is actually a consequence of turning on a gene. But one of the things that you can be sure of is that imagine that you were engaging in a certain set of activities and perceptions hmm. uh, preceding the moment where you had a successful social interaction. That feeling of mastery is a is a consequence of the release of, of a chemical called dopamine and dopamine mediates positive emotion, mm. especially of the kind that we're talking about. But the other thing that dopamine does is that it makes circuits that were recently active grow. And so, so that's the neuroplasticity. The, that's right. Well, that's the reinforcing element. So mm. if you see, because the way your brain is, is set up is that if you do a sequence of things and the outcome is what you want, then there should be a higher probability that you'll repeat that sequence again in the future. Mm. Well, that feeling of, of positive accomplishment is part of the feeling of having that circuit become more powerful and grow. And so, and if so, if you're introverted and you want to be more socially skilled, you want to figure out what it is that you that your goals are. You might make local goals like I want to have lunch with a new person once every two weeks. Mm. That's a nice micro goal, and then even within that, you might you might develop even smaller skills, more precise skills. You might say, "Well, I'm going to make sure that when I go out 
with this person once every two weeks that I'm going to ask them five questions, something like that. And mm. so extroversion is sort of a macro ability, but it's made out of a bunch of micro abilities and perceptions. And, and to build more social skill, you work on those micro abilities and perceptions. And and you can do that across the the trait dimensions. Like a disagreeable person can learn carefully to do more for other people. An agreeable person can learn to be more assertive and to stand up for themselves better. Like an unconscientious person can learn how to use a like a Google Calendar scheduler and to start to become more disciplined. Mm. And maybe someone who's hyper-conscientious can start to learn the skills that would be associated with relaxing. Mm. So... You said something else that also caught my attention. You said a lot that caught my attention. But you said that uh, children, if they haven't been socialized before they're four years old, you're, yes. a, you're a little bit fucked. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. There's a yeah. The li- the literature on that sort on that particular topic is rather dreadful. Hmm. Um, it was I learned this by working. I worked with a gentleman named Richard Tremblay, who was a, a Quebecois scientist. He still works in Paris and. He did long-term follow-ups of, of aggressive kids, and and I, I studied with him and learned a fair bit about the development of aggression in children. And what you see basically is that if you imagine that you group groups of children together according to their age, so you have like 22-year-olds, 23-year-olds, 24-year-olds, 25-year-olds, etc., all the way up to 18, and then you watch the groups of children interact and you code for violent behavior biting kicking hitting stealing by far the most violent group is the two-year-olds and but within the two-year-olds there's a subset of kids who are the aggressive kids and almost all of them are male it's about one in 20 males and most of those kids so they're naturally predisposed to be aggressive and and maybe hyper competitive Almost all of those kids are socialized by the time they're four years old. They learn how to con- regulate their aggression. They learn how to integrate it properly into their social behavior. Because there's nothing wrong with being aggressive per se. It's when it's uncontrolled and random and impulsive that it's not good. Aggression per se can be commitment and, and forthright action and passion and all sorts of things that are good. But if those aggressive kids aren't socialized by the time they're four, then it's almost impossible to socialize them after that. And the reason for that seems to be that your job as a parent with a child between the age of two and four is to turn the child into a socially acceptable being. And there's two reasons for that. So one is you teach the child how to react properly to adults, and the proper way to act towards adults is to act in a manner that makes the adults respond favorably to you, to want to pay attention to you, to want to teach you things, to want to interact with you, because then you'll learn things from adults, which is really useful because they know about you. (laughs) So if your child isn't socially acceptable to adults, then adults will turn away from them Mm. and they won't learn anything. And perhaps even more importantly, if you socialize your child properly, then by the age of starting at the age of three, but certainly kicking in by the age of four, then they're desirable play partners for other children. Mm. And they get invited to do all sorts of things, all sorts of activities, including play. And that's how their socialization continues. Because 
a tremendous amount of socialization for human beings occurs in peer groups mm. after the age of four. And if your kid doesn't get into a peer group, then they don't get socialized by their peers and they fall farther and farther behind. Mm. And then the question is, when should children start in kindergarten? At what age? Yeah, well, that's a complicated one because it depends on the child and it also depends on the home environment. Mm. I mean, so I would say extroverted, extroverted children who are emotionally stable can start kindergarten pretty young because their stress tolerance levels are very high and they're very social. And so, you know, they love being around other kids. Mm. But for for a for a more anxious child, especially one that's introverted, then day then then daycare is going to be a more complicated problem mm. because they're they're not so oriented towards other children and it's easy for them to become anxious. Mm. And so um it, it, it's something that has to be determined very carefully with regards to each individual child. It also depends on what options the child has. Mm. Sometimes children come from home environments that are so terrible that putting them in, in daycare is excellent just because they get away from the pathology of the home. Mm. But then sometimes a child would have a very good home and they're put in a daycare center that's not as good as their home. Mm. But basically, children under... Children under three aren't that social. They have a hard time sharing and that sort of thing. Mm. And so it, 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 they, need a fair, they need a lot of individual attention. And so large-scale daycares for kids under three are, are likely suboptimal. And kids also like, they don't like having their caregivers changed. The younger they are, the, the more stressful it is for a child to have their caregiver changed. Mm. So, and they can tolerate multiple caregivers, but they have to be the same ones. And younger children like stability in their environment because they're, they're trying to learn so many new things that if you add too much additional uncertainty, then mm. it exceeds their developmental competence. So if I understand it correctly, Jordan, certainty is uh, almost the most important for kids up to three years. Yeah, stability. That's stability, right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because there's plenty of novel things for them to investigate, even within very stable environments. Mm. And what's what's most important to them for stability is interpersonal stability. Because, like the most, if you imagine a child has a territory, a two year old child has a territory. Almost all of that territory is mother. Mm. And so, if mother's switched, it's really hard on the kid because the whole map goes. Mm. I know because a lot of human territory is is other human beings mm. rather than physical territory. In fact, because we're so social, it's true for it's true for many many different social animals and many different primates. But human beings are hyper social, so most of our maps are maps of other people. It it, it completes the blue my mind when I talk about when I think about this as uh, maps. I always think about these mechanisms. I think okay, we're searching for certainty or insecure, uh, or we're searching for variety, or we think to grow also mechanisms. But I think what as maps is it's it's completely different. But then I think of my child, for example, and he's now two and he's yeah, he's in the crazy twos, <laughs> and I <laughs> and I see that. He's he he's not trying to find this map. Various various various. Uh, how can, far can they push the borders? Yes, definitely. Oh yeah. So, so he's not he's not creating. It. 
So he's not creating his map. And when I yes. and I, when I'm working with people having problems with anxiety disorders, for example, their map of security is is this small. So some yeah. of them they can just be inside their living room and all the curtains right. down. Then they're secure, but that's their map. So right. so when we're expanding their map, then we're expanding their also their their security. And yes. and what you're saying, Jordan, is that what I'm really curious about now. You said that when we go out our comfort zone. We have to go out of the comfort zone to, to, to widen yes. our range of, of security. But for children, when do we start to push them a little bit out of the comfort zone to activate the genes we talked about earlier? Well, okay, so let's, let's look. You said your two-year-old is pushing you. And mm. That's interesting because, of course, the way that children map out the social contour is by manifesting all sorts of different behaviors including provocative behaviors, saying no, being angry, pushing. <laughs> because when they do that, mm. like the map is a map of how the world responds when I do something. Mm. And so what the child wants to do is do a whole bunch of things everywhere to find out how the world responds. Mm. And of course, the world is mostly the social world. And two-year-olds are very provocative because they learn through provocation. They learn through pushing and, and, and teasing and and well, and aggression for that matter, mm. and temp- tantrums and all sorts of things. They'll throw everything they've got at you. <laughs> and, oh, yes, and they're doing that because the map is extraordinarily important. Mm. And then, well, with regards to expanding that, a lot of that you do with children through play. And rough and tumble play is particularly good for young children. Mm. And they love it. I mean, they absolutely crave it and love it. And partly that's because when you're wrestling with a child and, and you know, and, and grappling with them. Hmm. You're stretching out their limbs and you're taking sort of the edge of pain and you're teaching them you're teaching them how to dance with you in a physical way. Hmm. You're teaching them how hard they can hit you and that's still fun and not mean and, and how to not poke you in the eye and <laughs> not bend their fingers over. Like with, with rough and tumble play, hmm. you're, you're helping the child explore the contours of their physiological hmm. environment and you could think about that in some sense as 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 teaching them how to dance mm. physically. Like you notice that kids who have been neglected are very very awkward physically, mm. and they don't know how to interact with people at a nonverbal level. Mm. They, they don't know how to match their gaze to someone else. They don't know how to smile in response. They don't know how to dance. Now, if you take a mother and an infant, and the mother is healthy and and positively bonded with the infant. And, and you videotape them interacting and you speed up the videotape, you can see that they're in a continual dance. The mother will do something, the child will do something. Even the infant, the mother will do something, the infant will do something. <laughs> it's a dance back and forth and you wow. can see this sped up. Whereas a depressed mother interacting with her infant, there's none of that interaction. There's no dance. Mm. And so what you're doing with your two-year-old and with infants for that matter is you're mostly you're dancing with them. Mm. A lot of it's physical, and then they build up the physiological platform upon which more abstract social skills are are predicated. And they've got the melody and the rhythm and the beat if if you interact with them a lot physically. And huh? nothing beats rough and tumble play. Like kids love that; it's really good for them. Is that some of the same reason a lot of uh, grown or teenagers love MMA, mixed martial arts as, uh, as as well, because they get more calm when they push the borders with others. Is it a little bit the same? Yeah. Mm. I mean, yes. Well, I mean, that happens with males, particularly when testosterone kicks mm. in. 
and then they start to push the borders because they have new capabilities and new and new powers and so they start to push the borders to to understand the contours of the more specifically adult hmm. adult world so sexual world and also the competitive world so then they're changing their map again so we we actually always always changing our map as soon as you're outside our comfort zone we're always pushing the map then yes. I understand yes well in that you you also mentioned how how do you know how far to push someone outside their comfort zone and hmm. part of that is is that when you push someone outside of their comfort zone in an optimal way that makes them engaged in what they're doing mm. so the sense of being engaged in something is actually an indication that you're in a situation where you're both maintaining the stability of your map and expanding it at the same time wow and that's that's what gives people a sense of meaning is it wow it, yes yeah well exactly it's a major thing to know because your your nervous system is tuned to tell you when you're safe enough but also learning because that's what you want eh? hmm. <clears throat> you want to be safe and expanding your competence at the same time and the fact that that when when you're engaged in something that's a signal from your nervous system that you're optimally positioned in the environment hmm. optimally positioned both with regards to security but also with regards to growth and so that's well that's that's what it means to experience something as intrinsically meaningful. Now, if you're pushing too hard, that meaning will expand up into anxiety. Mm. And that means that you're, you're, you're pushing yourself, especially if the anxiety gets extreme, you're actually pushing yourself beyond your adaptive capacity. And if it gets dialed down too low, then you get bored. Mm. And that means that you're not challenging yourself enough. You're safe, but you're not growing. That tells me something. That, that tells me that the goal setting is extremely important, actually, and the correct goal settings. Because if you're setting the, the wrong goal, the wrong goals, you can get anxious or you're getting bored. Yeah, so exactly. goal setting is extremely important. And when you're creating the map, calibration mechanism is like what you want to do is if you if you set a high level goal, hmm. you know, if you want to improve your career, then the way that you break that down into smaller goals is to keep breaking it down until you found a micro strategy hmm. that's big enough so that it engages you hmm. but not so large that it makes you that it paralyzes you with anxiety it shouldn't be it can't be if it's too small it'll bore you hmm. if it's too large it'll make you anxious if it's just right then you'll be engaged so if you are a very visionary person then, that's looking 10 years in the future in, a, in an instant they can often get become anxious Yeah, well, they're trying to transform too many things at the same time. Yes, that means that yeah. that they can't match their map. Yeah, exactly. And they get it's, depressed. They get depressed, or they're getting sad because they can't reach their goals fast enough. So that's actually yeah. they're mismatching mismatching their map. Then that's right. Then that's what happened is they haven't calibrated the map properly. Interesting. And what they need to do is to probably bring things closer to the shorter term mm. and make their goals smaller and more attainable. Now you 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 can do that in a dialogue with yourself mm. fundamentally, like Help. as if you were in dialogue with someone else. Well, if you if you get up in the morning and you know you're oriented towards some higher level goals, let's say you've you've established those maybe career goals or educational goals, then you can have a discussion with yourself about what you would be willing to do that day to move towards those goals. And mm. it really is like a discussion because If you ask yourself to do too much, then you'll find yourself procrastinating and frozen. 
And if you ask yourself to do too little, then you'll you'll start to feel aimless and and kind of nihilistic. And so you want to figure out how fast you can advance to your given goal that day Mm. and stay engaged and committed and interested and and also have the highest probability of actually implementing. I have a question for you, Jordan, (laughs) another one. And I read in the newspaper today that children that had been been, uh, exposed of sexual harassment, for example, they attract the same kind of people again. For for example, if, if they have experienced it in childhood, they you have a brilliant you have a brilliant psychologist in Scandinavia named Dan Olwius. Okay, and he wrote a book called on bullying about it must be twenty years ago now. It's a brilliant book, and he looked at the the predictors of being bullied. And it's very much similar to what you're describing is that predatory people look for people who are not very self-confident and who are easily intimidated. Uh. And so like predators are predators hunt, roughly speaking, and they don't go after people who are standing tall, looking forward, moving quickly, Mm. determined and fearless appearing. So we can think of of them as predators, actually. Yes. Yes. They, They go after. They go after people who are kind of hunched over and timid and who look like they won't cause any trouble at all if you if you go after them. They're very good at marking out people like that. Bullies do the same thing. There was something in uh, in uh, one of your speeches that really caught my attention, Jordan. <laughs> and but you used the example of Lord of the Rings, how they build this build the structure of the stories, and they oh. are uh, and we see the same in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Can I can I explain that that one? Well, the, we could start with the, the Hobbit story. Mm. Okay, so the Hobbit is a story about a small person who lives in a protected area. That's the Shire, right? And that's and that's home territory. That's where the map is functional. And then, but there's things outside the map that are brewing bad things, and. And so he decides to go on an adventure voluntarily to go out to confront the dragon. And a dragon is a symbol of the unknown. The dragon is a symbol of potential and chaos and the unknown. And, and the reason for that is because the dragon, a dragon is a reptilian predator. So like it's a representative of the evolutionary enemies of mankind, fire and winged things and things with teeth and scales and things that live underground and and crocodiles that live in the water and pull you down and predatory snakes and all of that. And, but it's also something that hoards gold. And that's because the unknown, that dragon is a symbol of the unknown and the unknown is something that's threatening and dangerous, but also that has a tremendous amount of potential. And the Hobbit is a story about a small person developing some additional skills thievery in his case because he had to become a master thief right which is a strange thing he had to develop some of his negative qualities in order to become a heroic enough individual to go confront the dragon and get the treasure and there's some idea there that's akin to Nietzsche's idea of the revaluation of good and evil in lots of people think that they're good people because they're harmless and agreeable and they would never hurt anyone they're sort of soft and naive and 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 childishly kind and they think about that as 
virtuous, but that's not virtuous. It's just harmless. Mm. And to, to forge yourself into something that's capable of going beyond the confines of your territory out into the unknown world, you often have to develop aspects of yourself, you might say, that are more warrior-like, that are tougher and more attentive and more cunning and more open-eyed and more skeptical. And that makes you a better person, not a worse person. Mm. And that's what happens in The Hobbit. And that's partly why that story is so powerful is because it's a story of psychological development. And it's universal psychological development. It's a universal hero story. But I'm curious, we call it the hero's journey, for example. Yeah. Why, yeah. why is it that the hero's journey is so, so powerful for our, for our people, for us, us humans? Well, because it's a, it's a narrative representation of the process by which we learn. You know, like you were talking about your two-year-old pushing the limits. Mm. You know, so the two-year-old lives within this confined space of, of his current set of skills. But he doesn't want to just maintain those set of skills. He wants to grow them. Mm. And so what happens is he pushes himself outside of his domain of competence into a place that's unknown where he's forced to develop new skills. And he continues to do that because the, what human beings do to adapt is to continually develop new skills. Mm. That's, our, that's our characteristic mode of adaptation. And so we're basically, we're an animal that's, that's adapted to confront the unknown. And like almost every, the Star Trek movies are a good example of that. I think the, the motto of the Star Trek movies is uh, to boldly go where no one has gone before. And it, it's, it's the human archetype of exploratory behavior and, and character development. Mm. And the stories are universal because, because it's a universal truth. That's how we learn and grow and develop. Is that the reason we find this, this hero's journey so motivating them? That we see and it inspire us to see that we can do the same? Or is that the reason? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. It's, and it's part of our universal cultural training. And even if our traditional stories fall apart and we're no longer deriving um, our, 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 our proclivity to imitate from traditional stories, they automatically pop up in new stories. Hmm like the Lord, the Lord of the Rings is a good example of that. The mythologies always recreate themselves. They have to. But if we go to a culture, a culture that is broken, when I mean a culture broken, they, are, they kill each other, they're mean to each other. Yeah. And does that mean that their map has been corrupted or changed yes. and, and the hero's journey here, it, it doesn't work? Yeah, or people aren't doing it anymore. Mm. Or they aren't doing they're it anymore. shrinking away. And hiding, that's what happens in totalitarian states, is that there's no more hero's journey because everyone says all the problems have already been solved. Uh, and and no the, problems, the, the map is enforced. It's like, you're going, to, you're going to live within this map, and the map is 100% right. Mm. And there's no room for any improvement. And there's no room for any heroism or transformation. Mm. And so that's horrible for people because it takes all the meaning out of their life, as well as subjecting them to tyranny. It also takes all the meaning out of their life. And then they get bitter and 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 even more hurtful. So that's the reason when people are depressed and they don't find any meaning. It's the same thing, though. That's a total totalism. It's the same thing. Well, that, that's one. That's one possibility. Yes, mm. is that people get so encapsulated within a single mode of, of being that, that that nothing new comes in. Mm. And they're stultified. Yeah. There's lots of reasons that people can become depressed because they can also become depressed if they face an overload of chaos, 
right? If, mm. if they're so far outside their map that nothing is working and everything is going wrong all the time, that, that's also a place where that, that people can sink into depression. You wrote a book uh, some years ago, uh, Jordan. Uh, can you say a little bit about the book? Well, the book is called Maps of Meaning, and it's it's a story about archetypes. It's a it's a book about archetypes. It's a book about the hero myth fundamentally. Ah, and interesting. It describes the world as a place of explored and unexplored territory, and that that's that's the fundamentally correct way to think of the world, rather than to think of it as a as a materialist structure. Mm. And that your 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 being as a human being is is the being that's that's always grappling with the distinction between explored and unexplored territory. Mm. And explored territory is where when you do what you know, you get what you want. And unexplored territory is every place and situation where things turn out differently than you desire. It's a different way of looking at territory. Unexplored territory is that which manifests itself whenever you make a mistake. Okay. And then that, that unexplored territory is a place that you haven't mapped. And then your your job as a human being, and the meaningful part of your of your life is to um, is to map remap that unexplored territory and master it. I've noticed I've still talked video on Zoom for an hour, uh, Jordan. Um what I'm really <laughs> thinking is that as humans, we really need to push our borders. We really need to remap and remap all yes. the time. Or yes, yes. Well, that's what keeps us alive mm. and growing. Yes, exactly. It's all the remapping, actually. Yes, and the transformation of skills mm. and worldviews. Yeah, that keeps us alive. You also have a new book that's coming out in February. Well, it's actually coming out later than that. Oh, is it? Because there's been some delay in the publication, yes. Can you, so, can you say a little about it, or is it secrets? Yeah, so about three years ago, I was writing on a website called Quora, Q-U-O-R-A dot com. And Quora is a kind of an interesting website. You can post any question you want, and anyone can answer it. Okay. And then the answers get upvoted. Wow. So, yeah, it's quite an interesting site, and many people use it. And so a kid wrote in and, and asked if anybody knew some good rules for living. And so I wrote 42 rules for living and posted it on Quora and it, it became very popular. Hundreds of thousands of people read it. Wow. And, and then I was talking to a book agent in Canada who had recommended that I write a more popular book. And so I decided to turn a number of those rules for living into essays. And so the book is a, a set of rules for living. Wow. So that means that it also will give us some uh, some uh, essays about uh, coming out of pushing our borders. Yes, hmm. exactly, definitely, and, it, and the essays the essays circulate around the sorts of topics that we were talking about today, and so Super. and so that's what that book will be. And then, well, uh, we talked a little earlier about this. I also have these writing programs online at a site called selfauthoring.com. Yeah. Perfect. We've given away a number of those lately, the Future yeah. Authoring Program, um, and that helps people write a plan for their life. And, well, one of them helps people write mm. an autobiography. The other helps them. The present one helps people analyze their personality, and the Future Authoring Program helps them write a plan for their life three to five years down the road. 
and it helps them develop a vision of what their life would be like if they were taking care of themselves as if they were someone they they wanted the best for. Mm. And so you write about what your life would be like three to five years down the road if, if things turned out for you in a manner that would be good for you. Mm. And then you write for 15 minutes about what your life could be like in three to five years if all your bad habits and and careless thinking and, and resentments and so forth took the upper hand and drove you into the ground. And so that what that does is it, it, it gives some people a concrete sense of, of why effort is useful because it moves them towards a valued goal mm. and it moves them away from a terrible place. And that way you're sort of maximally motivated because if you really want to be maximally motivated, you want to be trying to get away from someone, something terrible mm. while you're simultaneously moving towards something better. Mm. I think it's partly why many religious structures have a conception of heaven and hell. Mm. And because heaven is that place where things are optimally configured and hell is that place where everything falls apart Mm. worse than everything falling apart. It's a place where everything falls apart and makes you bitter and resentful and, and then well, and then Mm. dangerous and then maybe even worse than dangerous. And so after you write out positive and negative vision, you write out a detailed plan for attaining your positive vision including articulating the reasons that you're pursuing it and why it would be good for you and why it would be good for your family and why it would be good for society and what you do if if obstacles emerge. And we've done that with now with about 7,000 university students, mostly in Holland, as it turns out. I have a collaborator there who's been very active in testing this process. And we've improved people's university performance by about 20, 20 to 25 percent and dropped their dropout rate by about 20 to 25 percent wow yeah it's amazing yeah, that's you know amazing. It, works best, it works best for um for males mm. who are now underperforming females in, in many academic institutions and it works even better for minorities students so and i i think it's because minority students immigrants students they have a harder time with their map eh, because mm. they're they're not enculturated and so having them walk through a detailed plan for their life seems to have amazing effects on their performance. So that's so cool. It isn't something we expected. I, tried, well, uh, I didn't expect the program to work as well as it did. <laughs> I, I bought all of them. And I think, ah. it, and I think it's amazing because it brings, it brings this awareness. It brings awareness and you see it, you see your traits and not that, the, not that traits. The, yeah. And what I think it's great about it is that when you start asking the question, asking answering these questions is that it brings the awareness of why i'm here what yeah. stopped me from attaining my goal on what's yeah. the, what's the traits i've been having since i was five for example so it brings this, uh, this awareness and just round it up now jordan is that around almost 40 percent of everything we do every day is on automatic mm-hmm. uh, uh, that's what science says uh, so this means that your program is bringing awareness to this 40% actually. Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, one of the things that I've learned too in my clinical practices, like people are aiming for something, whether they know it or not. That's something I learned from reading Carl Jung. Mm. 
He said that you're acting out a myth, whether you know it or not. So you're aiming at something, whether you know it or not. And you you may have picked up your aims from all sorts of places that you're not really consciously aware of. Your parents' demands and their parents' demands and cultural demands and your own resentments and impulses. And they all go together to make a value structure and, and that orients you. But it's it's better to think through and articulate your own value structure. Hmm. And that's partly because... One of the reasons that people don't get what they need and want in life is because they don't aim at it. Mm. They, think, they, think, they think they aim at it, but they don't. Well, or, or sometimes they won't even, they won't even, they haven't even taken the time to articulate out their goals, partly sometimes because, well, it's difficult to mm. decide what you want. But I think people are often afraid too that if they do, see the problem with making your goals clear is that you also make your conditions for failure more clear. Mm. That actually turns out to be a good thing, mm. but it's scary because if you're vague and 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 unclear about what you're after, then you can hide failure from yourself. And so people are perfectly willing to keep themselves enveloped in a kind of fog of unknowing mm. because it protects them against the felt sense of failure, but it completely eradicates the probability that they'll get what they would need and want in in life hmm. so it's very very counterproductive and that's the reason i think these programs is essential because i think we need we need to bring this awareness and i work i work as a mental trainer or mind trainer and i yes. see that most of most of the problems is the unawareness so what i'm working the most with is asking questions asking questions yeah, brings I, awareness so Absolutely. That's well, that's why those programs are mostly questions. Yeah, that's the reason I started this podcast was was to ask people with success or that's done something unique to see what their mechanisms is, what their strategies yeah. are. And when when we ask these questions, we start to think. We stop this automatic reaction when we get this question of why what's what's the reason you did that action, for example, or what's the benefit or outcome you want out out of your action now. So okay, you start right. to think about the outcome of the action. You start to become aware of it. And we yep. start to do this for every action. You start to think, ah, oh, that's the reason I'm yes. doing this. And that is not the way I want to go. So Right. Well, that's the critical thing. And it's very useful to do that with your relationships, too. Mm. You know, I mean, one thing that people can do that's very helpful if, if you have a, a partner is to decide what what you want from them. Mm. And you can always discuss that with them. I mean, there's there's always the possibility that if you're clear about what you want, assuming that you're vaguely reasonable and that you're willing to negotiate, that the other person is willing to meet your demands, you know, assuming that you're also willing to engage in the same process with them. Mm. But you do your partner a great favor by letting you letting them know in quite a bit of detail what would actually make you happy. Mm. And people people won't do that either. They expect they think something like, well, if my partner loved me, they'd know what I want. That's, <laughs> that's not you know, true. That's, that is definitely not true. It's just, yeah, yeah, but it's it's amazing how many people act that out. Yeah, I and know. The consequences are very negative. And it's all about awareness. The reason huh? when we start. Yeah, one of the one of the stories that I've been very entranced by. Two of them. One is a story from ancient Mesopotamia called the Enuma Elish, and the other is a story from ancient Egypt about a god named Horus. And 
the characteristic of both those gods, those are both gods who encounter chaos and, and make order. So they, they go outside their boundary of comfort and, and regenerate the world, really. Mm. And the Mesopotamian god Marduk, he's described as having eyes all the way around his head. And the Egyptian god Horus is the famous Egyptian eye that pays attention. Mm. And, you know, we're talking about awareness and both the Mesopotamians and the Egyptians worshipped awareness and attention as the highest god. Okay. Yeah, and they regarded, the, the Mesopotamians regarded awareness and attention as hmm. part of the process that turns chaos into habitable order. So that turns uncertainty into certainty and turns unexplored territory into explored territory. That makes sense. Yeah, and then the Egyptians regarded the the Horus, who's, who's a falcon and also the eye, Mm. as the force that regenerates the dying society. Same same idea, you know, and, and that its attention moves outside the world of the known, encounters new things, get, encounters new and frightening things, gathers information as a consequence, and then restructures the world. Mm. And that's what human beings are supposed to do. That's what we find meaningful. And that is actually what YouTubing is doing these days. It's bringing this awareness so we start seeing what is wrong and what's not wrong and what we can do and not what to do. Yes, yes. And I mean, I, 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 in Maps of Meaning, I, I laid out an argument that was derived partly from Nietzsche. And Nietzsche believed that because of the death of our most fundamental presuppositions, he called that the death of God, mm. that Western society had been cast into a situation where both nihilism and meaninglessness and totalitarianism beckoned as alternatives. Because mm. if your meaning structure falls apart, it's easy to become nihilistic. And if your meaning structure falls apart, it's easy to turn to a totalitarian solution. Mm. And so then the question is, what's is there an alternative to those two? And Carl Jung worked on that a lot, and I worked on that a lot when I was writing Maps of Meaning, and the conclusion that I derived from all the reading I had done in the investigation was that the proper solution to the fact that things have fallen apart is to build individual character mm. not to become nihilistic and not to become totalitarianism not totalitarian not to become the member of a group that's right about everything but to build your own individual character so that you can forthrightly encounter the unknown and and regenerate the map your map and, and the general map the general map that people use which is society and you're really doing this these days with your uh, YouTube videos. Well, it looks it looks like it. <laughs> it's pretty interesting that they're able to have such reach. I think it's, I think it's amazing. It is amazing. It's absolutely amazing, and and it's so it's so interesting that discussions and lectures now have the same reach as books or mm. more reach. Even that's a technological revolution. Uh, it's marvelous. For sure, I can talk to you for hours, George, but I think you're a busy man. I just want one last question. If you want to recommend a book, what book would that be? Well, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, that's a pretty good book. Mm. And it's, it's, it's a nice intro to what I would think of as both sophisticated philosophy and sophisticated psychology. It deals with very weighty issues. But for people who are who are interested in meaning and, and interesting interested in having a, a more productive and, and engaging life, Man's Search for Meaning is a great book. Mm. Ah, it's marvelous. It's, it's perfect. Thank you so much for your time, Jordan, and I hope to see you further on YouTube.
with more lectures. My my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so Good. much for your time. You let, let me know what happens with the video and all of that.